0: Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. As a reminder, the Radical Remission Project is not against conventional medicine, and we fully support an integrative approach to healing. Most of all, we hope that this Stories That Heal podcast will inspire and educate you along your healing journey. Hello,
1: and welcome to the Stories That Heal podcast. This is Carla, and today, Liz and I are excited to welcome our radical remission healer, Dr. Naysha Winters, who also happens to be a radical remission survivor. Diagnosed in 1991 at the age of 19 with stage four ovarian cancer, Naysha was told that surgery and chemo would only give her three to six months to live. She declined those treatments and worked with alternative doctors to overhaul her entire life, from diet and supplements to deep emotional work. She later went on to naturopathic medical school so she could continue her own healing journey and also learn how to share what she was learning with others. After 32 years, Naisha is alive and well, with her blood markers for ovarian cancer within the normal range. Dr. Naisha Winters is now a naturopathic doctor, a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology and a global healthcare authority. She has educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. You can learn more in her books, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer and Mistletoe: The Emerging Future of Integrative Oncology. Welcome Dr. Naysha. We're so honored to have you on the podcast. Oh my gosh,
2: you too. What a what a joy to be here. As we were saying before the recording started, I feel um humbled and excited to be here with you, your audience and some of the fellow uh you know interviewees that you've brought on
1: on board. So thank you. You're so welcome. Yes. So as you know well from Dr. Turner's research on radical remission survivors, the 10 common healing factors that all of the radical remission survivors use are in no particular order, diet, herbs and supplements, exercise, increasing positive emotions, releasing suppressed emotions, following your intuition, increasing your spiritual connection, having strong reasons for living, empowerment, and social support. So let's start with your healing for your own healing journey, 32 years ago, which of the 10 radical remission healing factors was most impactful? Perfect. Well, first of all, again, thank you. Um, but I do want to
2: clarify something that you shared in the bio about me, if that's okay. Cause that, Oh, please be, do. Yeah. Okay, we cause, well, cause that will be a good kind of runway to, to this discussion. So at the time I was diagnosed, to be clear for the, the listeners, um, I I don't think I ever knew what health was, but I was so inundated in not being healthy that it just was what was normal for me. I mean, even the doctors told my mom as a, as a toddler and into you know, as as up to not age nine, they all told my mom that it was normal that I just pooped once a month because that was my schedule. Okay. So just to clarify some things. And then by the time I was nine, I started my period. In 1979, oh. 1980, that, that was not, I mean, unfortunately that's more common today, but it's never normal. And it was definitely not common back then. By the time I was 11, I was put on birth control pills to deal with severe symptoms of endometriosis. Oh. And so by the time I was, and I'd been diagnosed at by age three of IBS and they started oh. putting me on baby Pepsid, you know, oh. back in the day and the birth control pills, they put me on at age 11 were like so potent, so, so high in estrogen that it's just like incredible to look at these patterns. So I just bring that to your attention. By the time I was 14, I'd already had one bout of cervical dysplasia by 16, it had um, evolved into a cervical cancer and they just kept hacking away and cutting away at my cervix at that time. And all of my symptoms just kind of progressed, but I was able to maintain them with a lot of different pharmaceutical interventions and still maintained like an outward appearance to the rest of the world that I was normal. And by all intents and purposes, everybody thought I was, I was like part of my, like head of my volleyball team, head of my student government, all the things. But what people didn't see was what was behind the scenes was the amount of trauma I carried in my physiology and in my psychology. And that was something I masked to the outside world very purposefully um, around that. So by the time my diagnosis came, when I was just shy of my 20th birthday in the fall of 20, uh, excuse me, good God, of 1991, I still, my brain can't quite take that in. Um, I had been in and out of the hospital, uh, in and out of the ER multiple times over about a six month period with excruciating pain, even more changes in my bowel habits, even more bloating than ever before. And everyone just assumed. And I think rightfully so because of just what we weren't knowing and thinking then that it was just an exacerbation of all of my symptoms. And I'd also procured extra diagnoses of rheumatoid arthritis, which that's really rare for someone my age, um, as well as polycystic ovarian syndrome and the extreme acne that I dealt with and all of these other issues, chronic UTIs, chronic yeast infections, all of these things. Like no one wove together the whole story of it, myself included. It was just like just uh, that's just how it is, right? So by the time I finally, uh, my roommate found me basically non-responsive and rushed me to the ER and we had a different doctor on shift that night who was a visiting ER doc who decided to do a little bit deeper look for me because apparently i caught his attention i did not look right let's just put it that way mm-hmm. when i think back to where that was i was severely cachectic. i had a massively swollen abdomen which we would find had eight liters of fluid um inside of it like amazing amounts of fluid i was severely malnourished and i had a i had a bowel blockage i was also my oxygen levels were well below 80 and they were like surprised i was still alive and so when i showed Showed up in the arm ER when they finally ran proper testing, when they finally ran proper imaging, which had never been done, and at a proper physical exam, which had never been, been done, that's when they noted a grapefruit sized lesion on my right ovary, lesions in my liver, peritoneal implants, carcinomatosis, a CEA of over 15,000, um, a malignant ascites. As they started pulling it, it was clearly bloody and, and funky. And they told me that I couldn't have treatment because I was in end-stage organ failure. My kidneys weren't shut down. My liver was in shutdown. I had the bowel blockage. My electrolytes were terribly skewed. The oxygenation levels were really skewed, and they were fearful that a single dose of chemo would kill me. Oh, Wow. So there was nothing that could be offered. So when you said I refused it, it was refused to me. Ah, and gotcha. They sent me home to die. And so they sent me home with a second opinion, which that second opinion followed the first opinion. And it would still take a few weeks before that official diagnosis came in. It was almost three and a half weeks before the official diagnosis came on October 21st of 1991 of, of ovarian cancer, which was suspected at the time in the ER. So that's where they told me I wouldn't see the new year. Mm, right, that's, and yeah, and that's so, rough. Wow, all to, of it. Yeah, I just wanted you guys to have a little bit of that context because it wasn't wow. that I just for you know like decided against standard care. In fact, I was pre med. That was my plan. That was my I was going to go to med school. Don't don't don't. That was the plan. That experience, however, did taint me from and left quite a bad taste in my mouth about standard of care because there are so many. I'm gonna tell you the entire story about the experiences I had over the next five years around this, were pretty awful as, as far as my experiences in the standard of care community, which is what led me to going to naturopathic school instead. So I think that's a, pl- a place to take a nice breath there and talk about sort of like when you're given no way other ways reveal themselves and i think that might be a good starting point for our convo.
1: Yes, thank you for that. Appreciate it. And it is good to have all of that information. And you know, so many people get a cancer diagnosis and they're like, wow, i was so healthy. Right? <laughs> and you're the opposite. I
2: thought that too though. But i mean, i did, this is the weirdest thing. I thought that too, cause I'd be like, I played, I was on the volleyball team. I was playing volleyball in college. I was straight A student. I was like all the things, right? I, I, I might, like I said, the outside world and because of the medications and things I could sort of deal with my symptoms. By the outward appearances, I was fine. Mm. The inside was a hot stinking mess. And that's where every single patient I've ever seen, maybe, maybe I could count on a hand once, you know, maybe on one hand over 30 some years of someone saying, I knew I was in trouble and I didn't fully... I wasn't surprised when the diagnosis came, but I would say virtually everybody else said to me, I was healthy until I got cancer. And that's part of what my life's work has been is to help people understand their why in order to understand the what in order to help them do the how, you know, to move into the next phase <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah but, but. that's great. So you were sent home to die at the age of 19, 20. What did you do? What were some of the first things you did to save your own life? Yes, so my, my patients like to call it, save your ass
2: university. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, got, I think I've got a couple of doctorates from that at this point in my life and in my career, but to also add another element that may be unique not necessarily unique, because I've learned this from other patients over the years, but it's different than perhaps what many of the people you'll interview, I didn't want to live.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So the behind the mask and what was happening in my life personally and its impact on me physiologically that, would, that I would start to understand further was I had tried to take my own life over several occasions. And um, the opportunity in that moment that I saw when the cancer diagnosis came and I literally, I, this, I'll never forget this, that I comforted the physician on call that night who gave me this, you know, plausible diagnosis. Cause we didn't have all the details, but this is what he thought. He was so, so emotional because he had a 19 year old daughter. Mm-hmm. And so it, for him, I was, he was talking to his daughter and I can appreciate that. at that, that now as a clinician of how it is sometimes hard to leave your own stuff out of the room with your patients, which is also what I try and train physicians to do now. Like how do we be compassionate and empathic without going into the trenches with, you know, going in there. But in that moment, there was like this glimmer, this one spot that I went, Oh, thank God. Like I was like, what a great way to go because clearly taking my own life was becoming more challenging than I expected. And I didn't want to leave that sort of drama or trauma on my, my mom or other people in my life. And so I thought, what a great outing, what a great way to go. Like, and to go out kind of as a martyr. I mean, I really looked at cancer as a really elegant exit strategy. Hmm. That was a flash, mind you, just a flash But I think what happened and I think this is where it stimulated my internal um, genetics, which I have the genes for OCD and genes for high dopamine and genes for sort of that warrior, you know, we'll talk about here of like that, that inner, um, empowerment, like that somehow got, uh, relit the pilot light of that part of my being got relit. And basically when I had someone telling me you can't do it, it can't be done. There's no way I had spent my entire first 19 years on this planet telling me, never going to happen. No one goes to college. No one graduates college. You could go, maybe go to associate school and get a degree and become a secretary or maybe a paralegal. Um, you're just going to end up kind of getting knocked up and living in a trailer and that's going to be your life. And that sounds really harsh, but that was like, the bar was not set very high for me to, to leave my environment that had a lot of trauma, um, in it. A lot of abuse a lot of trauma on pretty much all levels poverty all the things right and so there wasn't an expectation that it could be seen any different so for me this exit strategy seemed like as good as it could possibly get for me in this lifetime but that pilot light got lit and it it made me angry and so anger became in chinese medicine we say that anger is is a healthy emotion because it creates this energy around the energy to become. We might call it will or willpower in the way we understand the construct of the Western mind, but it did something like that. It woke something up that said, by God, don't tell me how this is going to play out. Right. So, and you're not God. So let me have this internal experience. So between that and then my second, my follow-up a few days later, um, with the second opinion. I was angry and I ended up going to my library in Durango, Colorado, my small little town library. And for whatever reason, I would never even heard of alternative, nothing, nothing, in alternative medicine, nothing at all. The book that literally felt like jumped out at me was a book by a guy I'd never heard of at that time. Nobody had ever heard of, which was called, um, quantum healing. Deepak uh, <laughs> Chopra. And so how ironic, you yeah, know, that's 1991. You guys, because I also worked work study in the library at that time to as my Pell Grant for my to go to school, I was taking out tons of student loans and getting grants and scholarships and whatnot because of being a first timer in college and poverty, etc. I worked in the library, which also at the time when security cameras weren't available and I was so poor, I also slept in that library. My mm-hmm. god, I'm almost scared for this to come out for them to know this. They all, they've heard me talk about this before, but. <laughs> My experience is there as I started digging, and this is at the time where we had the Dewey Decimal System and microfiche as our research, right? There were, there was no Dr. Google, there was nothing out there. And I stumbled across a couple of things that I think were integral to my healing. But the first thing I did after that reading quantum healing to realize the, the shift happens internally first, right? That, that was a big one for me. And I felt like I literally had a paradigm shift in the two hours I sat on the floor of that library and read that book. And just inhaled it. In fact, it was pretty impressive. And this is late, you know, late October 2021, 1991. The second thing is because I had a bowel blockage. And my experience was such that every time I even drank a little bit of water or anything solid, it would create such excruciating pain or make me throw up that I didn't eat outside of tiny, tiny sips of water and herbal tea over about a two and a half month period. And I had to keep going in to have the ascites drained, the fluid build up around my abdomen drained. And as I fasted, the longer I fasted, the less fluid they had to pull. So mm-hmm. accidentally, what, we didn't know the things we know today about mm-hmm. fasting, right? This is again, 1991. Mm-hmm. That was an accident that saved my life was the bowel blockage was probably a huge gift. And the other of the quantum healing of the concept of my mind over this. And the third was the concept of the trauma and recognizing that the only way I was going to survive this was to completely leave the toxic soil in which I had been you know, marinating for my entire life. And so people have heard me talk about a family fast and that's exactly what I did for the next several years and cut all ties. So that was at a time when people couldn't find you. And that was very important to me. And I was also very, there was a lot of shame around this because of my trauma history, the abuse history, these other pieces, I didn't want anybody to know about that, that history, but I also didn't want anybody to know about my diagnosis because I finally left that, that place where I grew up in the, in the toxicity. And I'm finally in a new environment where nobody knew me, nobody knew my story, nobody had any expectations of me. And so the last thing I wanted to do was give people the expectation that I was a victim because I'd come from that. And any expectation that I was a cancer patient, I wanted to be a 19 year old college student, right? 20 year old college student, sophomore year in college. And so for me, those were probably the critical pieces. And then the next 30 years or so, I've learned a few other things along the way. But I think those were the integral changes of finding that internal empowerment, finding a strong will to live. I did not expect to live. I did not expect to turn this into my passion and, pr- and purpose but I wanted to understand why and I immediately shifted in that next semester in January of, of 92 I switched my major from a biology chemistry to a bio- to a psychology biology and created a self-constructed major in psychoneuroimmunology uh-huh. and I that those are the pieces for me, the, the, the dietary piece, I had become a vegan and I put that in parentheses, if anyone's just listening, um, because at 16, I did it for the, my grandma was this bookkeeper for a huge meatpacking company for 50 years. Right. And (laughs) I was just like completely disgusted. And even as a kid, I didn't like meat and my family was like, but God put cattle on the earth for a reason. And it was very much like I was the black sheep always in my family. But I just didn't like it. And so I became a vegan at that time, which seemed really cool, except for I was living on things like fake, like fake everything, like every, and it was very grain and very carb dense. There was no no vegetable matter. In fact, today, as an omnivore, I eat a heck of a lot more vegetables than I ever did as a vegan or a vegetarian. And so, <laughs> you know, some of those things were playing a role in this. But like the dietary piece, the only thing about diet back then was Gerson therapy. And so I applied as much as I could with that probably helped because I grew up in such a standard American diet. It probably was a shift in my chemistry, but ultimately that was the only real dietary change because I was already eating that way, theoretically the right way to eat for cancer at the time of my in-stage diagnosis. So it would still take me another seven or eight years before I would bring on even an egg. Um, another f- about five to 10 years after that, before I would bring in fish or any other animal protein. And I will tell you for my own body, my own chemistry and what I've learned, those were things that were integral to my healing and my improving on this path, because that was my personal journey. But the area that I really focused on that made the biggest difference was not about what I was eating or the supplements I was taking, because we didn't know those things at that time, but it was about the shift in my consciousness, the shift in my belief system, the shift in my spirituality and my path and purpose.
1: Wow. Wow. (laughs) That is (laughs) great. No, it's so great. I don't even know, like just amazing what you went through and how you got to where you are today. So thank you for sharing all of that. Thanks
2: Thanks for listening. I, you know, I, I had moments to tell pieces of it, but I thought, well, I should probably clarify, because I think people make the assumption of I'm a nature path, so therefore I'm going to be against standard of care, or two, I foregoed I standard of care to just do alternative, and I didn't have any choices. And in fact, the beginning, there wasn't even alternative choices. It was an internal shift that was happening before there was any external applications. And so I just thought that was important to, to lay the foundation for folks here, because I think that everyone always wants from the one thing that I did. And it's, it's uh, still right. 32 years later, it's still happening. I'm still working on it. Right.
3: Yeah. It's incredible. All of the, um, everything that you went through from it sounds like from birth on, um, with your health, physical health and obviously your emotional health, but what a story. There's so much. I, I feel like the audience should be able to relate to a little it's something that you have said probably is relatable to everybody on some level. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the varying degrees of <laughs> the past that have taken you on, you know, you've you've been through it. But what an incredible um, share. So thank you for for being willing to to share that with our our community, because that's really um it's really important for people to see because you're extremely successful now and you're on the other side of it all these years later, but to see how, you know, it's important for people to realize that, you know, it can be really, really low and you can still have an incredible, incredible future. Yes. So thank you for, for living that out for us and sharing with us today. Um, I am curious, uh, and you know, we can, we can kind of head more into your, your practice and you know, how that all happened. Um, but I would love to know if you, uh, have ever talked to your, your patients about the radical remission factors or just knowing what the factors are, are they encouraged to use them?
2: I love that. You know, the second this book hit the market, I, I, I don't know how I'd seen some pre-release. And of course my, I've got my Spidey feels out for anything in the oncology world from standard of care to alternative care. And I feel like I kind of read, like, I feel like I kind of stumble across things before they become like popular, you know, out there. And so I definitely stumbled upon radical remission before it became as massive as it is today. And I started making that required reading for all my patients and even all the physicians I train today and the advocates we train today, this is one of the required readings because. Everyone is so seduced by the idea of the things that are going to treat your cancer. And yet the hardest part of this and the most important part of the healing process and the optimization of the terrain, as I like to call it, is an insider's job, right? And so that's what I love about seven of these 10 factors are not external give it to me, take, take it in, treat with it processes. They're completely internal processes. And so it was so critical to that. And it's hilarious because even though I say that we put that out there, people still start with the tangible because the hardest is the intangible. It just is. And, and as someone who, for me, and this is not to say that this is the right way or the wrong way, but because there was nothing tangible that was being offered that's the only place I could start. And I do believe that it's very much the major reason why I'm here today. And so I wish I could compel people to start there first versus as the last resort, which is often the case, and go from there.
3: Yeah, that's great. A great point. And I think that, you know, coaching people in this realm, we see that. Sometimes they're really, really ready to dive into that by the time we get to them. And, and other times they really do need to hold on to the physical and say, yeah, I'm going to releasing suppressed emotions. We're going to put a pin in that.
1: <laughs> yeah. They all want to start with diet. What's, what should I eat? How should I eat?
0: Yeah.
2: And, and the irony is the diet is probably the most controversial, most difficult to actually tackle because it's so biochemically individual and your needs change. Over time. And so that's even one of the things when I was able to interview Dr. Kelly, uh, for my podcast just recently, I kind of asked her like, what are your, what are your two or three, uh, you know, factors that you are using in your life? And she mentioned something that completely resonated. And I think it's worth repeating here was that what she does of those 10 factors will change as her life changes and the needs in her life change and where she is in her life. She's like, there's been times when she really focused on those tangible external things. And there's been times when she really focused on components of the internal work. And, um, and so for me, I feel like that's true for myself as well as the clients that I get to serve, the physicians I get to train, the advocates we get to train and that recognizing that what you need to put your attention on or prioritize in those 10 factors will also ebb and flow over time.
1: If you would like to learn more about the healing factors, join a radical remission workshop to learn how to implement them into your life. You will learn how lifestyle choices such as diet change, increasing positive emotions, empowerment, and more can boost your immune system in scientifically proven ways. Our workshops follow a unique, interactive format that encourages sharing and social support. You will create a self-designed, one-week, one-month, and six-month action plan that you can begin to implement right away. For many, a radical remission workshop is the first step in finding a like-minded, uplifting, healing community. The 10 factors of radical remission can be used safely by anyone on any healing journey as well as for prevention. These 10 factors will aid you in improving your immune function and have helped many people overcome cancer or other chronic diseases. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find virtual and in-person workshops and other events. Looking for a thoughtful, heartfelt gift for someone with cancer? The Radical Remission Project has partnered with woman-led small business, Rest and Heal, to create lovely care packages for you to send. They feature the Radical Remission and Radical Hope books alongside natural wellness products, all of which are non-toxic and sourced from women-owned, black-owned, and New York state businesses. We know our community is passionate about spreading the Radical Remission healing factors, and these care packages are a great way to get knowledge into the hands of those who need it most. Visit restandheal.com forward slash shop to purchase or learn more. That's restandheal.com forward slash shop. All right. Well, we would love to hear a case study or two on patients that you've helped to overcome the odds. Do you have any stories that you can share with us? I knew you were gonna ask that. And it's so this is the hardest
2: thing for me because literally, just to give context, I went to about five or six years ago, I went to a big, I think it was an ASCO conference, which is sort of like the Super Bowl of standard of mm-hmm. pair oncology. Yep. And I was in a room of probably 2,500 people. And one of the speaker basically said, how many of you, and I'm standing in the back of the room because I, I'm a back room stander or sitter. And, um, there's like, he's like, how many of you have seen success, you know, seen someone overcome a stage four diagnosis. And I'm about ready to shoot my arm up until I read the room and realized there was not a single arm up in that room.
1: Seriously? Oh.
2: And that's what I was in my head. I'm like, maybe they didn't hear the question. Maybe <laughs> he then repeated it. Right. Like, no, honestly, like, yes, we all see people surviving a little bit longer with stage four, but how many of you seen people recover from a stage four diagnosis? Mm. Like we really considered no evidence of disease and standing there. I, I started to raise my hand again, but I thought, oh, I talk about having a target on your back or the naysayers, which I'd spent so much of my career in that place. I was like, this is not the arena I want to step into. But in that moment, I thought about myself and and thought about my own process. And no one would consider me no evidence of disease. Thirty two years later, and yet here I am. But I do have not hundreds, but likely thousands of patients who have accidentally achieved no evidence of disease with, from a stand, stage four of, you know diagnosis, and so meaning that there's no measurable amount on. Imaging on cancer markers, those are the metrics by which we gauge remission of standard of care, you know, oncology approach. My brain, however, also has a different understanding and that there is no such thing as being cancer free because cancer is part of all of us all the time, you know, from the get-go. So my brain is like, I started playing that Libra thing because I've got, I am a Libra. And so my brain's like, well, in some ways he's right, but he, of course, I know he's not thinking the way that I'm thinking. But it just broke my heart to realize that standard of care does not get to experience the level of miracles and of thriving that I get to bear witness to every single day I wake up and take another breath. I'm just shocked by that. And so when I think about any one um, i think my very first patient when i was because i never you guys have probably heard me talk about this i i did not want so when i started medical school the only person who knew about my diagnosis i did not tell the administrator the people who did my interview process because i was afraid they wouldn't let me in okay so i'm still very very sick um, my husband obviously my boyfriend at the time knew and my doctor at the clinic at the naturopathic clinic where i went she knew and that was it no one else. I'm like, this stays in a vault because I did not want to, again, I did not want to be like labeled. That's very important to me. And that's also very important why I try and teach patients and colleagues. Like don't call someone, Oh, you're a breast cancer patient or a bubble. Like, no, you're not. You're a person who happens to be dealing with a process that yeah, might be labeled as X, Y, or Z, but you are not your cancer, right? That drives right. me nuts, but <laughs> it's like, and so people who do that, I get that. It's not, a, it's not a criticism. It's just an awareness of that. We our cells listen very intently. And when you keep telling it, you're a cancer patient, you're a cancer patient, you're a cancer patient, it's going to believe you. All right. So that's, that's one piece here, but I really did not want to work with cancer. Cause I was like, i done. I mean, I thought I was going to be a midwife. Cause that was a whole different world. Like let me bring life into the planet versus taking it out of the planet. And then I realized I would never sleep. And so mm-hmm. sleep is very much part of my superpower of how I deal with my own health issues. So that was a big one, but there were just other things. I thought it was going to work and maybe mental health addictions because of what it came from. That seemed like a natural fit, but it was like, oh, I just, yeah. Anyway, first week of work, gentleman comes in in a wheelchair because I was also dual trained in acupuncture. And I worked in a pain clinic in Durango, Colorado. And so whenever they didn't have tools in their toolbox, the standard of care orthopedics and the neurologists and whatnot, couldn't take care of the pain, they referred him to me. So I was the secret weapon. So I used things like frequency specific microcurrent, acupuncture, homeopathy, you know, and just general nutrition and things to work with inflammation, supplements, et cetera. So he came to me, which I didn't know in a wheelchair, head bulging out. When we started to talk, he was like screaming out, but almost unconscious. He had so much opiates on board, but he still was having severe breakthrough pain. He came to me for pain management and end of life care because he had a end stage glioblastoma multiforme in his parietal lobe. And it was literally had malformed his skull. He was in a diaper. He couldn't talk. He couldn't eat. The pain was excruciating. He was having grand mal seizures, constant there was no pharmaceutical that would touch these things. And it was like, basically he, if there was a right to try act or right to die act at that time, he would have taken advantage of that, right? Three young kids all under the age of 10 at that time. Um, And someone I'd known in my community for a very long time and young, I mean, he was in his forties, you know, at the time of this diagnosis, and this is back in 2000. And I tell this story because though he died in the end, that was 18 months later of end-stage glioblastoma and on his imaging, when I started working with him, his, um, uh, his uh, oh my gosh, the, the ventricles of his brain were closed, meaning that there was no circulation of cerebral spinal fluid and he had such a midline shift of the brain tumor pushing so hard that on a scan, there was no physiological reason why this man should be alive. And the the neurologists and the oncologists, they're all just scratching your head. Like we don't even know how 18 more months with scans that look just like that. We did not change the, the, that we did not take away his diagnosis, but we shrunk that tumor to the point where his skull was normalized. No more pain out of diapers, walking, talking quality of life. Do you remember that a GBM in the initial diagnosis has nine to 12 months 18 months at best with standard of care. There was, he was inoperable. He was not a candidate for radiation. And at that time there was no things like TMZ and stuff like that we had today. So he was put in hospice. He was already four months into the process when he came to me and was at like, literally we expect him to be dead any day, right? 18 months later here he was. And the things we applied because the seizures were so severe in the literature is when I ran across therapies, the ketogenic diet for pediatric um, pediatric epilepsy that came out of Harvard in the two, in the 1920s. And I thought, well, geez, if it was safe for pediatrics, it's got to be safe for him. Why not? Let's try it. Within yeah. a couple of days, the seizure stopped. Wow. Wow. Between that, acupuncture and some homeopathy and some deep dive in emotional work because he came from an extremely extremely traumatic childhood of physical and emotional abuse, as well as he'd had multiple head injuries from trauma from his physical um, abuse as well, which they contributed we worked through that. We worked through the pain of this. He got to be with his family and his, his wife and his kiddos for another 18 solid months of high quality of life. In fact, the last day of his life on planet, they'd driven up to look at the fall colors that night, his family crawled up with him on his bed and he went to sleep and never woke up. It was those experiences that shows me that that was a radical healing. This man Mm -hmm. absolutely healed into dying. So I want your listeners to know that I've seen probably three, 400 of those experiences of people literally healing all of their wounds and all their traumas and leaving the world a sweeter place with their exit. So I want to share that piece. That's one end of the spectrum.
1: Thank you. No, real quick. I just, it's so important that people know that healing doesn't equal cure. Thank you. Right. Thank so, you. so it's very different. And and we try to help people understand this too. It's like, and, and we're all going to die, we, right? We, nobody, nobody gets out alive. We don't get to choose when or how or any of that, but to be healed before dying. Wow. How powerful is that? So thank you for that story. Gives yeah. me and what a gift to, for,
3: well, for him and his family to have that, to un Unexpected time in a healthful way, but also for you as a practitioner at, at the earlier part of your career to see and learn and be able to share that. And yes. that led to the hundreds, I'm sure that you refer to. So what an incredible you've, you've got quite a life. I know you've written maybe
2: <laughs> Five times. Was, uh,
3: an autobiography is,
2: is uh, in order as well. <laughs> someday, someday. I love it. No, but that's, I appreciate that. I appreciate that that landed here because I, I think a lot of people do somehow perceive, you know, the dying from a cancer diagnosis as a failure. And so like we can even talk about, so, it, so a really good example of this kind of stay on this topic is, um, David survey Shriver, his book, anti-cancer. Living. Mm-hmm. Love that book. Right. It was another book that was so like integral to my own healing process. And the crazy thing is if you ever read his book, not the last goodbye, which I, I every time I talk about this, it, it just makes me so emotional. It also, I resonate with this because this book did not come out until after he died and by design, because here's a man Who had survived the unsurvivable, you know, know, non-survivable of glioblastoma Mm -hmm. for 17 years, and it had a couple of recurrences within that window of time. And then his work got out. I mean, I learned about him before his first book, Anti-Cancer, because of his work with fish oil and depression in the field of psychiatry. Like he was really known for his other work in the psychiatric world, which I will tell you, I don't know his life story, but you don't usually become a psychiatrist or a psychologist unless you've got your own psychological (laughs) just like going into cancer. It's like, you usually have some very pain to purpose thing that led you there. So my imagination is he had his own traumas to overcome in that department. But here's a man whose work changed many of our lives in the field of oncology and integrative oncology in particular. And yet he did not want his diagnosis or his recurrence to be public until after his death and until it came out with the book, Not the Last Goodbye. Because he was so concerned and I resonated with this so deeply, which was part of what made me kind of come out of my own closet was if he told people that he had recurred despite 17 bonus years, and that he was progressing and would likely die of this. He was afraid that all of his work would be discredited.
1: hmm Yeah. What a yeah. shame.
2: Right. Total shame. And we just went through that this week with Suzanne Summers. Right. Right. 24 yeah. years with three different, that we know of, bouts of cancer. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the people are like, Oh, and it's the alternative medicine that killed her. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like just these things. So I know for myself. And in fact, I just got my labs back yesterday morning. So my annual labs, and I still 32 years out, still get a little bit of a in my belly, you know, Mm. like going to run the labs, going to wait for the labs. I had them run Friday of last, you know, um, A week ago, this past Friday. So they took a while because they took 14 tubes of blood. I mean, this is my annual check-in. The craziest part is my CA 125 is the lowest it has ever been in my entire life. I mean, I'd never had it into single digits, so this is a first. Wow. And the the change only change is that I went into menopause this year. First of all, the fact that I could could be able to say I went into a natural menopause—that's never happened in my family of origin either. They've either Mm. died for it, or they had their parts removed before it, or were put into surgical, uh, you know, or, uh, medical menopause. So the fact that I made it to that point was like another, like you told me that couldn't be done, <laughs> um, you know, so there was that piece. But the thing that threw me off is I was traveling extraordinarily the last six months for work. And I see the toll that took on my labs. So my a one C for instance, is always under five, somewhere between 4.3 and 4.9. My diet has not changed at all. But the lack of sleep and the travel and the impact on that, my A1C is the highest it's ever been at 5.4, which right. is telling me I have to do something. that was not about my diet. That's mm-hmm. about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That's about stress and lack of sleep. So it was like, that's interesting. My thyroid is completely off, which it hasn't been in years. And I have a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, but it hasn't had high antibodies or any issues for years. But that thrown off, which tells me somewhere in the last six months, I got major exposures to gluten, which is my big, everyone with Hashimoto's should be avoiding gluten like the plague. So for me, I was like, okay, this is the nature of the work I do today, that I'm putting a message out into the world is causing me harm. So how do I both take care of what I came here to do and take care of myself at the same time. Exactly. And so that's the dance where my ahas of my labs, nothing else in my lab shows any indication of cancering whatsoever, right? Despite if you did imaging and stuff on me, they'd probably say, oh, you still have lesions here, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not cancering. And in fact, my tumor assay is the best it's ever been at 8.9 on my C125. I'm like, holy crap. I didn't even know that was humanly possible for me. To be from fifteen thousand, and then for over ten years, well over a oh. thousand, and then from two thousand nine to this point in the hundreds, and then last year it got to eighty four, and I was celebrating that. And so for it to be eight point nine, like that's the menopause window I just walked through. So yeah. I turned on <laughs> a faucet, but I turned on some other faucets because my self care went out the window these last six months and trying to serve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I know I'm not exactly giving you the base case examples, but giving you my own and some yeah, of these our are great. Problems. And because, well, even the people that I look at now, I mean, Radical Hope has half a dozen of my patients' stories in there. Radical Remission Foundation website has hundreds of my patients' stories in there. Documentaries have my patients in there. Like, I don't have to retell their stories. They've already been telling them. Multiple of them are bringing their stories out in books coming out in the next few months to the next few years. So I, I have seen thousands. I wouldn't even know where to begin because to me, we're all on this path together still that it's like hard for me to say, like you used the word survivor early on, Carla, when you introduced me, I, I don't really relate to that. I relate to thriver. Um, but so I have thousands of thrivers. And so that's the part that's hard for me to, to like choose just one. And so the, the story of this gentleman I told you about with the GBM changed my life and My own, you know, the story of learning about people that are out there who've overcome the insurmountable and still are considered failures at the end of the day just is really sad. So if I went tomorrow, everyone would say that this failed me 32 Mm -hmm. years ago, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And that's where I really hope that I can, like, can we just stop that crazy train right now and change that perspective? Because I will go someday. Right. Very seriously, it will be from cancer, right? um, Just because of the nature of my, of me and and where I am and what I do to take care of that. But but I don't want anyone to ever perceive that whatever ends up taking your life in the end is a failure. And so that's I hope that your, your thrivers and your radical remission, whatevers, are hearing that the radical aspect of it is it's an ongoing, dynamic, lifelong, hopefully long life journey.
1: Yes, Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I prefer the thriver term as well. But of course, with Dr. Turner's research, it was radical remission survivors. So that's why we use that. But yeah, definitely not a failure. And I also don't want to have that lost or battle, you know, in the headline of my obit.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Like I I sometimes like I've done, I don't know if you've ever written your own obituary, your Mm -hmm. own. I've done them over the years. And about every decade, I take another gander at it. And it just gets funnier and funnier and weirder and life because my mom would tell you that cancer may have tried to take my a few times, but I've had some experiences like when I was doing my bucket list, when I thought I would never be here, I got rid of, I sold everything I owned and went on a seven month backpack trip and all over Europe. And I ended up being, you know, uh, I was kidnapped in Bulgaria. I was living in a bomb shelter in Northern Israel on a kibbutz. I uh, was on a, a train in Turkey that got bombed and we were on the side. I was like, I was on a, a ferry that the next day in the black sea sunk and killed 900 people. Um, I mean, there's like so many stories wow. like that my mom, my husband were like, it was like, I I like had this, there was a period of about a decade after my diagnosis that something kept trying to snuff my candle. And I just was like one step ahead of it. So I feel like that's my, my life's pattern. I feel like that has luckily, uh, I don't carry that around with me as much anymore, but in that beginning it felt like, it felt an interesting whether you believe in astrology or not, but I've met with Ayurvedic astrologers and Western astrologers and Ayurvedic astrologers. And they look at my chart. They're like, you really shouldn't be here. Like, <laughs> you're like literally the time that you are running this Dasha from age 10 through 29. So oh this is it's a 19 year Dasha. You can literally see where I should have died multiple times. Huh. And so it's just very interesting to me. And she, and then she said, you know, when when I first heard, she first did this reading for me when I was like 26, 27, She's like, the, she was people who survived this, this Dasha, this Rahu Dasha, um, live very interesting lives. Mm-hmm. And I would- say that's a understatement of the century.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Definitely. We need the autobiography.
3: Oh, yes. Oh yeah. You've Definitely. got more than nine lives. It sounds right, like, But right, right, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, while mm-hmm. we have you here, because we're hearing a lot about you, which I think is so special for our audience to be able to hear, um, all of this because, you know, you can read a, a very famous book of which you've written, um, and never really know the, the story of the author behind it. So I love that, but I do want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about your approach as a healer. Um, and I know we, you work a lot in the world of mistletoe and you have your metabolic approach. So, um, you know, this is your chance. Feel free to, to share whatever it is you think okay. our audience would like to hear about your practice.
2: Oh, thank you for that. Well, I think I think the big thing I alluded to early on is just this understanding of why a 19, 20-year-old is diagnosed with something like that, is trying to understand my own why. Why? that's really informed how I've approached every patient. I really wanted them to understand the biology that led to their biography and their biography that led to their biology. And so that story is very, that autobiography is very important to understand because there's always something, right? And as we have patients, write their chronology, when they're doing their initial intake with us, most of the time they go, oh my gosh, I never put two and two together. Right. They did like to see it when they start to do that. They're like, That totally makes sense. And so it helps them even understand how their story impacted their biology. So that's part of it. The other part of this methodology that I've used to inform my own navigation of this non-linear process, (laughs) (laughs) I think people were like, oh, she was dying this moment and now she's thriving now. And then it was just like a straight line in between. I love those images where it's like the curly, I mean, that's the reality is more of the absolute non-linear approach to this. But every step of the way, including like I just alluded to my recent labs, right? So I am a I am a data-driven gal, right? And so I think that data is also our story, data is our wearables, data is just tuning in to what you feel in your body, feedback from your community, you know, all of the things outside of even testing and imaging. But this concept of this methodology I developed over 30 years is known as test assess address, don't guess, is what I now train clinicians and advocates globally on. We're in 29 countries to date. We have over 200 physicians, over 300 advocates. We're bringing on two new cohorts a year. Um, our goal is to become like a mycelium net, you know, all over the world of this kind of common narrative that, that has a a much more hopeful tone to it than, than maybe is out there. And so next time someone says, well, what do you do for breast cancer? I'm like, I don't do anything for breast cancer. I'd like to know the person you're referring to, and then I can help you know what to do about that person. And so I'm reframing the way people think about and approach dis-ease and the cancer ring. And I use that Verb, um, you know, on purpose, um, because we all have cancer, but but we're not all cancering, and we may go in and out of cancering even unbeknownst to ourselves. Um, some of the literature suggests we do that seven to ten times in our lifetime, and our bodies are so insanely wise; they know how to, you know, kind of recognize respond and remember and deal with these things. And that those three R's are part of our immune system. And, you know, you can just look at around the world around us. We just came out of a three year pandemic that should probably give us a clue that our immune systems aren't working well. And to ask why, because it's not like, oh, I just have a default immune system and I'm deficient of a particular micro RNA injection. That's not what health is. Health is saying what led to your immune system not doing its job, what led to your terrain, not holding, you know, like court and keeping those cancer cells at bay, you know? And so those are the questions that we dive deeper. So the methodology is what we do there because the treatments to treat whatever patterns are being revealed will vary as widely. So for some, they might go full on standard of care, but if you're still not tending to that terrain, you don't get very far or others might just do all alternative If you don't tend to the bigger picture, you won't go very far and bringing the two together. Again, the treatments are less impactful than the environment in which they're landing in. And so that's what I keep taking people back to again and again. So when someone tells me that a therapy failed, first of all, the standard of care drives me crazy because they say the patient failed the therapy, but the therapy failed the patient. And the reason why the therapies of any kind fail a patient is not because necessarily the therapy itself was wrong or that the patient was inherently flawed in some way that they didn't do it right. It's that we didn't ask the right questions. We didn't reveal the right targets, the right reasons and approach that. And so that's what I feel like I do really, really well is help people understand themselves very well, help people understand their patterns and then understand what therapies are best suited for what patterns at any time. So we can understand the right dose, duration, the right combination and to know that it's dynamic and it will need to change as things change. And that testing is integral to that. Our patients who are actively cancering, we're looking under the hood every single month. And once they stabilize every three months to six months, depending on their diagnoses, and then annually thereafter, because this is a process that you will be now dealing as a manageable disease process. And so when people ring the bell at the end of their standard of care therapy, that is not the end. You guys, that's actually Mm -hmm. the sound for the beginning of the journey. Oh, I love that. It's so true. It's like, okay, you bought yourself a little time to now get curious and go figure out why you ended up here. So you don't ever have to do this song and pony, you know, dance again. Yeah.
3: Yes. And oftentimes what happens is that people go home and they're completely alone and lonely and scared and don't know what to do. It takes a long time to believe that they're actually in a healthful state physically Um, so it's, it's, I'm very glad to hear of your ongoing relationship because I think that's really important.
2: Yeah. And Liz, I really appreciate you brought that up because that's one of my favorite things that Dr. Keith Block says, and I think you guys have him on soon is he talks about like the most dangerous part of this journey is after that bell has been rung because it's like thinking about getting to the top of Mount Everest, the highest rate of death happens on the way back down. It's the same way in in standard care oncology and that you feel really supported even if you're flooding your body with poisons and like all the things, but suddenly they're like, okay, go home, get back to your life. And you're like, what? Mm -hmm. Something intuitively that person knows that ain't the answer. And so, or the patients who say, I can't wait to get back to my life before cancer. I'm like, well, remember that's the life that got you to cancer to begin with. So please never return to the soil in which you got sick. Please get curious as to what was in that inner garden that allowed for this to take root and and blossom and do something about it because that is your only true prevention and treatment is to head it off at the past to begin with and understand why. And so I really appreciate that a lot of our colleagues out there um, seemingly understand that concept and apply it, but it's a we are up against quite a, quite a goliath of a different mindset. I mean, there's still researchers out there saying that cancer is just simply bad luck and nothing can be done and you just wait for the other shoe to drop. I do not choose to live in a world that is that bleak and without hope. It does not serve anything or anyone. Um, And so fear and staying in that place of fear does not allow your body to go into the requisite parasympathetic in order to heal, which is why those seven factors that are the intangibles are such key players in someone truly managing their disease process.
1: Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Wow, this has been so great. We could keep going uh, for days, I think. (laughs) We could have part two and part three and part four with Dr. Nasha, but we do have to wrap it up. So thank you you so much. If our listeners want more wisdom from Dr. Nasha, where can they connect with you?
2: Thank you. Well, the best place would probably be kind of the overarching right now, which is the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health, which is mtih.org. That will also get them back into drnisha.com, which is where you have tons of access to my podcasts and lectures and things, just a lot of free content. But also the MTIH will talk to you about what we're doing with this nonprofit hospital and research institute, this lab, um, this uh, data platform, this education platform that we've created and oh so much more. So I hope that people will sign up and get our newsletter and know that we are absolutely passionate about changing the world of health in, in general and cancer in particular awesome thank you so much ladies what a treat appreciate it
3: absolutely and we will gladly have all of those links in the show notes for our listeners if they want to connect with you and get on that mailing list so you can get the the latest information sweet thank
0: you thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening to the radical remission project stories that heal podcast once again i'm kelly a turner phd cancer researcher and founder of the radical remission project If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission project, or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission healing factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission health coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit radicalremission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease, you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mansgerou, Produced by Ryan Giroux. Music by Batchbug. Follow the stories that heal wherever you get your podcasts.